Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast, where we address topics relevant to today's consumers and farmers. I'm Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Preston and I are Technology Development Reps, or TDRs, for Bear Crop Science. As TDRs, our primary mission is to help solve agronomic challenges that farmers face and to understand how to best utilize the bear suite of products, including traits, genetics, crop protection, as well as digital tools, to create solutions that are tailored to each grower's unique farm. We have a couple goals with this podcast, the first being to help farmers across the country to address challenges that they face throughout the growing season while introducing them to game-changing technology that has the potential to radically benefit their farming practices. We also want to provide the consumers of ag commodities who are not necessarily involved in agriculture with information about the practices farmers engage in and the reasons behind them, hopefully provide a greater level of understanding and comfort with how their food is produced. Today's guest is Dr. Joe Spencer. Joe is a principal research scientist and the research program leader in insect behavior at the Illinois Natural History Survey. He's a world-renowned expert on the Western corn rootworm. I've learned a lot from Joe over the years, and he even served as a committee member for my master's thesis defense. Hi, Joe. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, We're excited to talk to you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, talk about your education and maybe some of your past roles and then your current role? Sure. Um, I'm originally from Michigan, and uh, I went to uh, graduate school at Michigan State University. I earned a Ph.D. in entomology way back in 1994. I was studying the egg-laying behavior of a fly pest of onions. And uh, once that work was done, I went to University of Arizona on a postdoc where I studied diamondback moths. I wasn't studying resistance of that famously resistant insect, but I was studying behavior. And then from uh, University of Arizona, I came to University of Illinois in 1996 because they had a job in insect behavior which was really unusual, and that was to study western corn rootworm behavior in corn and soybean fields in Illinois, where there was this strange problem where the beetles were laying eggs in soybean fields. And that was the beginning of my association with western corn rootworm. In fact, I don't think I'd ever seen a western corn rootworm before 1996, and uh, it's basically been what I've been working on for the previous 23 years. A lot of our listeners, Joe, are consumers uh, or even farmers outside of the typical rootworm uh, geography. Could you take a minute to bring some of those consumers or farmers up to speed on why the Western corn rootworm or rootworm complex is such an important pest? Yeah. uh, Western corn rootworm beetles are extremely damaging insect pests. Um, These insects feed almost exclusively on the roots of corn plants or close relatives of corn plants, some grasses, um, (coughs) as larvae. And the potential for corn rootworm beetles to damage corn is very great. Um, A severe infestation of rootworm beetles can destroy almost three nodes of corn roots on a, on a corn plant, and destruction of three nodes of roots on a corn plant could reduce corn yield 50%. So one of the things that's important here is that 
just the insects feeding on corn roots alone have the potential to reduce the corn yield 50%. Then you start to throw in other factors like when damaged corn begins to tip over and lodge, that's going to make it harder to harvest. That's also going to change the light interception of the plants, reducing the ability of the plant to produce uh, yield to its maximum potential. So rootworm beetles have a tremendous potential to damage corn. Another factor that makes them really important pests is that once you have damage on the corn plants, there's no rescue treatment. A farmer who realizes he has a rootworm problem has found out too late that he has a rootworm problem because he can't really do anything to prevent the losses due to the larval feeding. So these are very important insects as larvae. As adults, the beetles also can feed on the corn silks and at high abundance they can uh, remove silk tissue fast enough to reduce pollination and so you can reduce yield further by having reduced pollination in the on the ears and uh, spotty kernels. Um, so the adults and the larvae can have significant effects on corn yield. The larvae are the primary uh, threat to corn grown uh, in the U.S. and it's both the northern corn rootworm and the western corn rootworm uh, that are the primary rootworm pests. That sounds like a lot of problem, a lot of havoc that can be wreaked by a pretty small little insect. So they're not very big. Can you tell us about how big they are? Yeah, um, a rootworm beetle is, as an adult, is probably a oh, third of an inch long. Uh, and they are, you know, uh, black and yellow. Uh, they're capable of flying uh, from field to field plant to plant and in certain circumstances they can be drawn into uh, weather systems and moved tens of miles. Um, these insects also have a historical reputation as being tremendous pests. Uh, uh, they are sometimes referred to as the billion dollar insects because uh, the combination of the cost of managing them and the losses that they inflict is easily um, exceeds a billion dollars. That's an, that's an old number that used to be uh, 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 used quite commonly back in the mid-1980s. Recent reassessments uh, from a number of authors suggest that these insects probably cause more than $2 billion worth of damage, or maybe more than that. Uh, very devastating pest that we've dealt with for over a hundred years. The first reports of rootworms as pests came out of uh, Colorado where they were first seen, where westerns were first seen on sweet corn back in about 1909. And northern corn rootworms were recognized as pests back in the late 1870s and early 1880s. Um, so we've been dealing with these insects for a very long time. Yeah, it has been a long time. You mentioned a lot about the biology. Could you kind of, uh, I guess, differentiate between the northern and the western, maybe talk about the the, com the rootworm complex and then some basics of what their life cycle is like? Sure. Yeah, um, as I mentioned, there's two primary um, corn rootworm beetles that affect us here in, in the Midwest, the northern corn rootworm and the western corn rootworm. 
Um, the northern corn rootworm is a pest that has been recognized for a, a very long time. You know, in the late uh, 19th century, they were first recognized as pests in corn um, in Missouri and in Illinois. Some of the earliest reports came from northern Illinois, also in Missouri in the late 1870s, where the northerns were uh, pests. They were uh, feeding on corn roots. The larvae of both species feed on the corn roots. Um, the northern corn rootworms are not quite as robust a pest. They're typically um, green colored, they're a little bit smaller than the westerns. They can also be sort of tan colored. Um, while they both species feed on the roots, the northerns are really pollen feeders and they have much less capacity to uh, feed on corn foliage and they quickly will uh, move around the landscape looking for pollen and they can often be found on weeds uh, near cornfields. But they come back to the cornfields to lay eggs and they really need to feed on the pollen. The western corn rootworm was um, not present in, in, in the Midwest uh, until uh, the middle of the 19th century. Uh, they were first discovered in, uh, uh, in an area around uh, uh, western Nebraska, Kansas area um, in the 18, mid-1860s. Uh, and as corn production ramped up, in the Great Plains following the Civil War, this insect used continuous corn production to move into the area we now call the Corn Belt. Uh, the western corn rootworm is a larger insect. As I mentioned, they're about a third of an inch long. Um, they feed on corn roots. They're a bit more robust, and they'll feed down the silks and the pollen, and uh, historically, traditionally, they have stayed in cornfields for most of their feeding activities only near the end of the season when there's very few resources left in cornfields would you find uh, western corn rootworm beetles moving onto weeds or onto flowering plants adjacent to uh, cornfields. So the, the western is probably the dominant species or has been the dominant species uh, over most of the corn belt for a fairly long period. Um, but historically, the northern corn rootworm was the rootworm pest that uh, uh, most people were worried about up until um, the 1940s and 50s when western corn rootworms really began to uh, uh, get a lot of attention across the corn belt as they moved east. And correct me if I'm wrong, but now in Europe, they're also causing a lot of attention. Haven't haven't uh, the western corn rootworm been exported to different places like Europe? Yeah, that's right. In the um, 1980s, uh, it's believed that the westerns probably hitched a ride on aid flights going to Central Europe uh, during the time of the uh, uh, Bosnian Civil War. And... Uh, they arrived at the uh, Belgrade Airport. They were first discovered adjacent to the Belgrade Airport. And since that time, the Westerns have spread in Europe, and uh, they cause tremendous damage there, just as they do here in, uh, uh, in North America. Um, there are other locations around the world that are potential um, 
homes for western corn rootworms. And so uh, it's important for people in corn growing regions around the globe to be vigilant. That's uh, an export from us that they probably wish they wouldn't have gotten. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Of course, we've we've gotten a few things from <laughs> Europe that uh, we haven't enjoyed. So I think we got the corn borer. You can have the rootworm. <laughs> it uh, goes both ways, doesn't it? It goes both ways, yeah. So uh, just to switch gears just a little bit, I, I just stay on the biology conversation, but we know that uh, any pest that we have um, eventually are going to overcome the control measures that we have for them. So can you talk a little bit about the, the rootworm's development of resistance to various control measures throughout the years? Oh, yeah. Um, well, the one of the reasons why the rootworm beetle is known as the the billion-dollar pest complex is this amazing capacity that they've had to evade management uh, techniques, and it uh, most famously goes back to uh, the late 1940s. Begins in the late 1940s when um, some of the synthetic organic insecticides were first applied against rootworm beetles. And it wasn't too long after their first applications in Nebraska that there were reports of rootworm resistance um, to a variety of uh, insecticides. And so this insecticide resistance uh, beginning, uh, I think, beginning in Nebraska uh, spread with the rootworm beetles as they moved east and as uh, new uh, classes of insecticides were developed and thrown at rootworm beetles, um, they were very adept at becoming resistant to insecticide. And we also learned that when they were resistant to the insecticide, that uh, if the insecticide pressure uh, was taken away, the, the resistance remained in the rootworm species. So it wasn't as though uh, stopping the use of insecticide uh, could allow you to, again, start using it later on. The insects retained the resistance. In fact, today, if you were to collect insects across the Corn Belt, um, they are still extremely resistant to a variety of insecticides that were once used against them that haven't been used for years, chemicals like aldrin and dieldrin, for instance. Both the westerns and the northerns developed uh, insecticide resistance during this period from the uh, 40s into the 50s. Um, <clears throat> and it's uh, sort of interesting that re really about the time that uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring book came out, um, uh, we were sort of in the throes of uh, a lot of rootworm resistance. Uh, as well as resistance in, in other species. The, uh, so in, insecticide resistance is, is a really vast story in the western corn rootworm. Um, the, the part of the resistance story that, that I came in on was, is one that began in the late 1980s or mid-1980s, and that was when we began to see some evidence of resistance to crop rotation. And it really started out as unexplained damage in rotated corn. 
Now, going way back to the 1880s, um, and a scientist named Stephen Forbes, who was the uh, chief of the Illinois Natural History Survey, where I work, he had observed northern corn rootworms feeding on corn, and he suggested that the best way to manage rootworm beetles was not to plant corn two years in a row in fields because the rootworms depended on corn as larvae and the adults laid their eggs in cornfields. Thus, if you didn't plant corn where you knew the egg laying occurred, you could avoid the damage due to rootworm beetles. So you would never want to plant corn after corn. That was his recommendation, in, I think, in 1883 for managing rootworm beetles. Now, that works really well. Unfortunately, it also is a very, uh, uh, it's a, it provides a very intense selection pressure. And we think over the years, the almost universal adoption of crop rotation selected for rootworm beetles that changed their behavior a little bit. And you can imagine that in any insect population, there's variability in their behavior. And if there were some rootworm beetles that had less fidelity to cornfields when they were laying their eggs, and let's say they laid a few eggs out in a soybean field, if that change in fidelity was something that was heritable, the following year, the offspring of a female who laid a few eggs in a bean field, those, those offspring are going to survive in an environment where there's a lot of crop rotation because the bean field will be planted to corn the next year. So over a period of years, we think that we selected for rootworm populations, this would be western corn rootworm populations, that had differences in their egg-laying behavior. And they began to lay eggs not only in cornfields, but in bean fields. And by the middle 1980s, there was this concern about um, damage occurring in first-year corn, in rotated corn. And they couldn't figure out why this might be occurring. At one, at one point, they thought, well, maybe this damage is coming from northern corn rootworms. Uh, that particular species had evolved a different resistance to crop rotation um, in the early 1960s, as first recognized. Their eggs remain in the soil dormant for two years rather than their normal one year overwintering in soil before they hatch. So they would stay in the soil for two, in some cases three, four, five, and even six years before they would hatch. That would allow northerns to avoid the year when corn was planted in, in a rotated corn-soybean system. Um, it turned out, no, the damage was being caused by western corn rootworm beetles in rotated corn, and it was soon realized by the uh, middle of the 1990s that the beetles were actually laying eggs in soybean fields. And the <laughs> resistance, behavioral resistance, to crop rotation in western corn rootworms was happening because the females were leaving cornfields and laying some eggs in soybeans and some eggs in corn. That particular resistance um, really set the stage um, for uh, the adoption of Bt corn against western corn rootworm beetles because the response of many growers to the rootworms being present in first-year corn was to use soil insecticides at a very high rate of adoption across the corn belt. 
this high adoption of insecticides against rootworms was kind of alarming to the Environmental Protection Agency. And uh, when companies like Monsanto were beginning to develop their uh, Bt corn uh, for rootworm beetles, the uh, use to protect rotated corn from the western corn rootworm was an ideal application for Bt technology. And it was one of the drivers, I think, for the adoption of, of that technology. And it was an important tool to manage rotation-resistant rootworm beetles. Um, and uh, the beginning of use of Bt in, uh, I think it was commercialized in 2003, uh, that sort of sets the stage for current challenges we're dealing with with western corn rootworms and Bt resistance. You know, like any product that we use at a very, uh, we have a very high adoption and it's used broadly, we're going to you know, impose selection pressure on an insect population and it's unavoidable. Natural selection rears its ugly head and, and the population begins to adapt. So rootworm beetles are uh, eminently adaptable pests and they have been proving us wrong uh, years and for years and years and years. Yeah, that's, I mean, the idea of the variant or rotation resistant rootworm, it kind of blew my mind the first time I learned about them in grad school or undergrad. The fact that for a hundred years you could rotate your crops from corn to soybeans and that controlled the Western corn rootworm to all of a sudden the females chose to lay their eggs in a crop that would not sustain the next, next generation. That just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 really sort of an uh, uh, an effect of natural selection. It isn't so much that they know, but it's just um, rather than having fidelity to cornfields when you're laying eggs, just scatter them because the presence of corn is now unpredictable in the environment. But it is just an amazing example of. Uh, of evolution in a cornfield, evolution at work. So Joe, when I, uh, the last couple of summers, or maybe it's been a couple of summers since I was driving through East Central Illinois and out of the corn and soybean fields, uh, several scaffolds appeared in the middle of a field. Uh, and I <laughs> yeah. came to find out that this was your research. And after learning more about what you were doing, it sounds super interesting. Could you talk about some of your research? Back during the time when we were studying the rotation-resistant rootworm beetle, I and a couple of my colleagues, Eli Levine and Scott Izard, um, we realized we needed to understand the movement of these beetles because we knew they were going back and forth between corn and soybean fields, uh, laying eggs in both these locations. And to study that, we put some scaffolding towers up in one of our fields, and we initially installed traps in these in the framework at different levels so we could see where the insects were flying as they moved between the fields. And one of the really fascinating things that we saw was that as we went up in elevation in our traps, and so our, our scaffolding was as high as uh, 40 feet tall at the top, so six sections of construction scaffolding erected in a field. And at the very top of the scaffolding, we would catch almost all female beetles. And most of these females were newly mated females. Down at ground level, 
we were catching a mix in males and females, very much like what you'd find in the cornfield. <clears throat> and after monitoring these traps for a while, um, somebody had the idea, of, well, what if we were to stand on top of the scaffolding with a net and catch insects? Maybe, maybe that would give us some more information. And uh, one thing it would give us was fresh insect material. So when we were catching insects in these traps, a lot of the insects were dead and dried up, and we could dissect some. But <clears throat> So we began to stand on top of the scaffolding, and uh, I would build um, about six towers, 40 foot tall, and we would stand up there in the evening and catch beetles flying out of cornfields. Um, I think we started doing it in, the, in about 1999, maybe 2000. We had very high rootworm populations um, at that time. My grad student and I uh, were out there one evening where in the space of 20 minutes, we caught 1,200 rootworm beetles, um, just two of us with a bug net 40 feet off the ground. Um, those were very high rootworm density years. Um, when we looked at those beetles, there's where we realize we have almost all females, and these females um, <clears throat> are newly mated, and many of them have been feeding on corn tissues before they took off. So they were leaving out of corn fields. They weren't leaving out of the bean fields. And then uh, we've, we did this over the years and uh, to study sort of the timing of the flight. These flights occur in the morning and in the evening. Uh, and the beetles like to take flight when the air is unstable, the kind of conditions that would spawn a thunderstorm on a nice, humid summer evening are the conditions that are favorable for rootworm beetles. Um, we also learned that uh, these beetles were behaving very much like uh, the beetles from some research that had been done in Iowa uh, 20 or 30 years earlier, <laughs> where they showed that the beetles that were flying were fairly young beetles that were engaging in long-distance flight. And uh, that matched with the, the uh, insect data we were collecting. And so what we found is that um, a portion of the rootworm population, and these are western corn rootworms, uh, a portion of the females, after they emerge, they'll mate, and within a couple of days, they will ascend on rising air currents and be carried a few miles to a few tens of miles uh, downwind. And uh, <laughs> this goes on uh, throughout the period that insects, that the beetles are emerging. Uh, and once emergence ends, the high elevation flight of the rootworms will end. Uh, there's very few males that are flying long distance. We have never found a northern corn rootworm flying at long distance, and they, they don't migrate long distance. But the western has the capacity to move very long distance um, if they can get uh, sucked up into fast-moving air currents. It's also known that the beetles can be drawn up into thunderstorms, uh, into updrafts into thunderstorms. And years ago in the 80s, they could be found washed up along the shores of Lake Michigan, like at Lake Michigan Beach uh, or uh, Indiana Dunes State Park, yet at densities that are unbelievable. There would be a line of beetles along the shore of Lake Michigan, uh, 
maybe a foot wide and an inch or two tall, as far down the beach as you could look. And these were beetles that had been sucked into thunderstorms, rained out of these storms, and then had washed up on the shore of the beach along the shore of Lake Michigan. And this would have been during the era of very high rootworm populations, so they're extremely noticeable. Um, those same sorts of behaviors can be occurring now, but we have very, very few uh, beetles moving. But the same dynamics are happening, and they can be carried vast distances in thunderstorms. Oh, that's incredible. You talked about the, the populations being much higher in the past, and we know they fluctuate right. somewhat from year to year. What are we looking at this year? What are the populations looking at compared to years past? Well, the um, western corn rootworm populations this year, at least in east-central Illinois, uh, and I suspect elsewhere in Illinois in general, are down. And that's due to the wet conditions we had in the spring and also because of late planting. Uh, <laughs> had planting uh, been uh, possible earlier or at close to normal times, I think we, we would have seen a reduced rootworm population anyways because of some soil uh, saturation. Uh, when the rootworm beetles, or when the larvae hatch from the eggs, they need to have soil conditions that will allow them to move through the soil and find the corn roots. And the peak of rootworm egg hatch probably begins around uh, the end of May, maybe May 31st, June 1st. And so the, uh, uh, the rootworm eggs begin to hatch, and that's based on temperature uh, degree day accumulations. And <clears throat> this year, with all the rain, uh, the corn wasn't planted in a timely fashion. And those larvae that didn't drown because the soil was too wet when the eggs hatched, um, they emerged, in many of them, into an environment where there were no, no corn roots for them to feed on. So we reduced the population this year, I think, partly due to some saturated soils during egg hatch, but also because there were no host plants available for the larvae. And so our populations have been reduced. Um, I'm not exactly sure how the numbers are going to uh, come out compared to some years. We're still doing some of the sampling. Um, just some incidental observations in soybeans suggest that the numbers of beetles that we typically find in soybeans, so these are rotation-resistant beetles, are very low again this year. Um, we've had fairly low rootworm abundance since 2015, which was the last time we had a massive flood in the springtime. And that reduction had knocked the population down for several years. It was beginning to climb back up last year. And the rains this year have knocked them down again. So very low rootworm densities this year, um, making it likely that we'll have fairly low populations next year. Um, this would be a perfect time to be monitoring rootworm beetles because with the low populations, uh, growers could probably avoid um, spending on some uh, rootworm management inputs. But they need to go out and monitor their fields to know that with any certainty. That is a little bit of good news in the midst of this uh, somewhat scary story you've been telling us. <laughs> uh, for farmers out there, how can they monitor for western corn rootworm? Ah, that's a great question. Um, 
Um, one of the one of the things about rootworm beetles is that it's possible to get a good idea about your risk uh, during the coming year. Um, if growers go out and place sticky cards in their soybean fields and even in their corn fields, if they're planning to plant continuous corn, they can monitor beetle abundance using uh, uh, yellow sticky cards um, and these cards placed out in the field during the time of beetle flight uh, can provide an indication of the densities of, or excuse me, the abundance of rootworm beetles in their fields. In soybean fields, if you put sticky traps out, uh, a threshold of about one and a half beetles per trap per day is an indication that you may have a rootworm problem in rotated corn the following year. And in continuous corn fields, if you put sticky traps out in the corn, that's going to be corn next year, and you average about two beetles per trap per day, that's an indication that you may have uh, an economic population and that, you, that you're well justified in thinking about some management activities. Um, the last few years, we've had really low root and abundance in certain areas. and uh, Yet, when I go out and monitor, uh, uh, sort of drive around in the country and see what's being planted, I can find in my area a lot of people who are using um, uh, BT <coughs> who probably could have gotten away with uh, soil insecticide or m maybe even some non-BT corn. Uh, it's just a matter of doing the monitoring, but very few people do the monitoring. And so it's great when uh, uh, companies provide the sticky traps and encourage this uh, because it's it's something that growers can do. They don't have to fly blind. They can do this monitoring and uh, know what's happening in their own fields. And it's really important that the monitoring is done in their own fields because the populations vary field to field depending on what was in your field. If you have a late planted corn field, you may have a fairly high beetle population pouring in there now as uh, as the season winds down, if, if someone in your area was able to get in a little bit earlier. So monitoring is important on a farm-to-farm -farm basis. Lest we think there they don't, uh, there's none out there, um, we know there are in certain situations like you mentioned, and I um, know from our site near in Woodford County, um, I put out a sticky trap, and uh, about an hour later I had 20 some odd beetles on it so oh. um oh my gosh we know there's still some populations out there in, in certain locations wow that's a that's an impressive population of beetles <laughs> can i build a scaffolding in your field <laughs> yeah sure no problem uh, we have some safety considerations <laughs> yeah that's that i think it's probably uh, I'm able to put the scaffolding up in the university fields, but I have a feeling that there's not very many other people. Even though we do this very safely, we follow all kinds of uh, um, uh, safe. We adhere to all sorts of safety requirements. Uh, it's a pretty dramatic thing to see in the middle of a cornfield. Absolutely. Well, Joe, we're coming up on 30 minutes, so the last question I'll ask you here today, is there any future technology uh, involving fruit, the rootworm complex that you're excited about? Well, I think uh, 
the thing that I've been learning a lot about or hearing a lot about is the new RNAi technology. Um, I think that's probably the most promising thing on the horizon, um, simply because <laughs> this is a technique that I think will offer a lot of versatility uh, amongst the technology providers to, you know, introduce very novel uh, genes uh, that can be blocked, critical genes that are necessary for the insect's biology. If you can disrupt those things in just rootworm beetles, um, this provides a sort of a new mode of action. And uh, right now, because the variety of the BT traits are not performing as they used to, having these new technologies is really going to be important. I think the RNAi is the thing that most growers are probably thinking about, looking forward to. Um, I know that uh, uh, you mentioned the parasitic nematodes. There's uh, quite a bit of research going on looking at uh, <laughs> whether those materials may uh, uh, provide efficacy um, and maybe even complement some of the technologies that are out there. And uh, I think also the monitoring is going to remain very important thing. And uh, you know, maybe what's new in monitoring is if we could get a lot more people doing the monitoring, um, that would be a novel change in the way that rootworms are managed. Um, there used to be, I think, maybe more scouting going on. Um, as we move forward, I think scouting can become a lot more important, especially from an insect resistance management perspective. I think we've, we've had the experience with BT. These products were great. They've lost some efficacy. Um, if we are doing a better job monitoring and using them only when necessary, uh, I think we can preserve these new technologies longer. And it's really important because, as you know, these are not cheap to develop. Uh, so, yeah, I'm excited about the RNAi and, and uh, other things coming along. I just hope people monitor and take good care of these technologies. Well, Joe, it's been great talking to you today. We appreciate all the information that you've given us. It's been very interesting. Uh, hopefully we haven't scared anyone too badly, but um, as you mentioned, we, you know, maybe we can get some people to take action on doing some things like monitoring and being proactive. Um, is there? Do you right. have a uh, way that people can follow you on Twitter or website, or um, how's the best way that people can follow your work? Well, um, I have a Twitter uh, handle, at Talking Rootworm, um, where I will post some things about rootworm beetles. This year, we haven't had a whole lot of rootworm things going on, because there have been very few rootworms. So I'll also put some pictures of other interesting insects and things that are happening out in the, the field or in my backyard. Um, that's, that's one of the places where you could... Uh, follow me. Also, uh, at the University of Illinois, uh, the, uh, the Bulletin, um, which uh, something can be subscribed to, I think it's through Crop Sciences Department, where uh, timely news about rootworms and other agricultural pests and weed issues um, are available. And I really recommend that. I, I am excited when I see a new Bulletin article pop up in my mailbox. And as we move towards the fall, I'm sure we'll have some updates on some interesting things with rootworm beetles that will be coming out in the news. Well, Joe, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. 
Thank you very much, Preston and Jason. It was fun.